Well, we're approaching here in the text this morning a, a key unit in, in Mark's gospel. Mark 10.45, that verse that you heard Jamie read at the very end there, if, if you have any type of church background, is probably a familiar verse to you. Uh, Mark 10.45, again, to, to say it says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Uh, one of our core values as a church here is taken from this, this verse, Mark 10, 45, a, a core value that we are called to serve. In fact, that core value we would state says that we believe service is the overflow of discipleship. And, and what we mean by that is, is as our hearts are stirred, as they're stirred to, to worship God, as our hearts are, are growing in affection for who he is and what he has done and what he's accomplished for us uh, through the atoning sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, and then one of the, the overflows of our praise and of our adoration and of our thankfulness is going to be this attitude of service toward one another and an attitude of service toward the world. This is an attitude in the heart that we see in Jesus himself throughout the gospel of Mark and throughout the gospels and then, and then through the epistles as they reflect on the heart and life of Christ. is one of servanthood. Now, Mark's pace of writing, if you've been with us from the beginning of this gospel, uh, you've seen that this, this pace of writing is action-packed. Like Mark is continually moving quickly throughout the life of Jesus here. The word um, immediately is used over 40 times uh, throughout Mark's gospel. And so when you look at the life of, of Jesus as Mark is portraying him, Jesus' life is, is one that's portrayed as, as busy, one that's moving from one setting to another, uh, a setting in, in life that is accompanied always by these large crowds who are always just pressing in on him, always asking things from him. Oftentimes we've read throughout this journey through Mark is, is that Jesus and his disciples a lot of times don't even have enough time to eat because there's just so much to do. There's so many people to, to care for, yet not once throughout this, this entire gospel have we seen Jesus lose his temper. Not once have we seen him, him grow frustrated with, with anybody who's asking things from him. Not once does Jesus ever blow up and scream at people, just leave me alone. Not once do we ever see Jesus talking negatively about others, about people to his disciples behind their backs. Like, what's wrong with these fools? Can they not just figure it out? Why do they keep needing me to do everything and fix all their problems? We, we never see Jesus once treat people that way, talk about people that way. He's patient. He serves. Not once do we ever see Jesus look the other way when someone was hurting because he just didn't have any time for them. I got things to do. Not once do we see that being the heart of Jesus. Now, throughout this gospel, Jesus is being portrayed as the king, right? The king of all kings, uh, the Lord of all lords. But as we're also seeing here today, he's also a servant. Jesus is the great servant king. And this passage that, that we've now arrived at is, is a good, it's just a good summarization of that truth about the character and the nature of who Jesus is. He is the servant king. But it's also a good summarization of, of who we now are called to be in Christ. Uh, Christ who has ransomed us, who has bought us, who has purchased us with his very life. Because of that, what Jesus has done, we are a new people. That, that's what baptism represents today, a new creation. The old is gone. Behold, the new has come. This is what Jesus has accomplished for us. A new identity, a new purpose, a new mission, advancing a new kingdom with this new mindset toward one another and toward the world. We're servants 
who are following the great servant king. This is what the cross creates. Do we see ourselves that way? Do we recognize this new reality, this new identity that we have now in and through Christ? Titus 2.14 summarizes this for us quite well. The Apostle Paul writing at Titus says, Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Again, this is what the cross creates. This is what Jesus is heading toward in Jerusalem. Right? He's creating through his life, his death, his resurrection, this new people, this new community with a new mission who are eager to do good, who are zealous to do good for others, zealous to serve. And so with that in front of us, let's be, as we should always be, shaped by the text today. We want God's word to always press in on us. We never want um, our life to be the standard and then we want the God's word to, to shape uh, around what we want. No, we want to be pressed in by what Jesus is doing, what he's called us to, what God's word calls us to. We want to be pressed and shaped by this text today. So my, my outline as we walk through these verses is really simple today. And I've actually already started to summarize it in my intro, right? Jesus has ransomed a people from every nation who all share a new mission a new kingdom, and a new mindset. So let's take a look at those points in a little bit more detail as we journey through this text today. So start with me again. Back it up to verse, uh, verse 32. We'll read 32 through 30, 34. It says, And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were, were afraid. And, and taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him saying to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. And so we see in these few verses here the first thing that the cross is creating. As Jesus is heading toward Jerusalem, toward his impending death on a cross, he's, he's saying, here's what the cross is creating here. It's creating a new mission. The cross is creating a new mission. This is the third and the final time that Jesus is going to speak of his impending suffering, his death, his resurrection, which is, which is coming. And, and it's one of the most detailed accountings that, that Mark gives on Jesus' foretelling of his death and resurrection. See, Jesus here, he speaks a little bit more detail of his arrest, of his trial, of his handing, being handed over to the, the Romans for his execution. He talks to his disciples here like, here's how I'm gonna, this is what's going to happen. Here's how I'm going to suffer. Here's how I'm going to be treated. I'm going to be mocked. I'm going to be beaten. I'm going to be spit upon. I'm going to be whipped. But then again, he, again, as he's done in all the other uh, foretellings of his, of his death, he, he speaks of the resurrection. And he says, but in three days he will rise. Now, now it's interesting to note Mark's placement. Each of these foretellings, there's been three over the last three chapters. Each of these placements that Mark places him. It's interesting to note this of, of where and why Jesus gives this accounting of his death and resurrection. And I say it's interesting to to know because Mark is, is trying to say something and to reveal or show something to the readers, something that's important, something that's significant. And so in Mark 8, this is where we see Jesus' first foretelling of his death and resurrection. And immediately after he speaks of these things, Peter pulls Jesus aside and, and it says in Mark 8 that Peter rebukes Jesus. 
And so it doesn't give detail into what Peter was, was saying or how he was rebuking him, but we can, we can infer and we can tell from, from even their interactions of, of Jesus and what's going on that, that Peter is telling Jesus that he shouldn't be saying these things. Right? Don't be talking about you dying and suffering. What are you, what are you talking about, Jesus? A king doesn't suffer. A king doesn't die. A king rules. A king reigns. A king conquers. And yet then we see Jesus pulling Peter aside and rebuking him in front of everyone. And with that well-known line that nobody who would ever follow Jesus would ever want to hear Jesus say to us, get behind me, Satan. In Mark 9, we see Jesus' second foretelling of his death and his resurrection. And immediately after this, this foretelling of his death and resurrection, we see the next narrative, the next, the next unit of his disciples arguing amongst themselves about which of them is going to be the greatest. And Jesus, again, pulls them aside and says, if anyone would be first, he needs to be last of all. He needs to be a servant of all. Here we are now, Mark 10, Jesus' third foretelling of his death, his resurrection. And what did we hear read this morning that's taking place right after he's saying what's about to happen to him in Jerusalem? We see James and John asking Jesus, would you make us the greatest in the kingdom? I want to sit your right and at your left. Now we'll get to Jesus' response to them in, in just a bit, but what were the disciples missing each time Jesus would speak of his death and resurrection? They were, they were misunderstanding something. They were missing something every single time that Jesus was talking about what was going to happen to him. They were misunderstanding the mission of Christ. They didn't grasp it. They didn't understand the fullness of it yet. They, they, were, they were misunderstanding the mission that he was calling them into. See, see Peter's rebuke of Jesus was because to Peter, again, a, a king doesn't suffer. If you're going to come and conquer Rome, overthrow Rome, you can't do that if you're dead. Jesus, stop talking about your suffering and your death. Right? A king reigns. A king conquers his enemies. But he didn't understand yet in that moment that Jesus' ultimate reign and rule and the conquering of his enemies, of sin and death and of Satan, would actually come through suffering. It would come through death itself. When the disciples in Mark 9 argued amongst themselves about which one of them is going to be the, the greatest, which one of us is going to be most well-known, which one of us is going to have songs sung and written about, right? Who's going to be speaking our names for generations to come? They're arguing about that amongst themselves after Jesus talks about his death and his resurrection. They were misunderstanding in that moment the nature of of Christ's kingdom. They didn't understand just yet in that moment, again, the mission that Jesus was calling them into. You see, Jesus' life, as you examine it, as we heard it recorded in Mark's gospel, is, was one of a single-minded mission. In all of Jesus' teaching, through all of his miracles, he always had one purpose, one purpose, to advance the kingdom of God. And that advancement could come and would only come through his death, through his resurrection. And even here in these verses that are in front of us, notice the words Mark uses to show Jesus' single-minded pursuit of heading toward the cross. Look at, look at verse 32 again. It says that, that Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. All right, So he was going to Jerusalem where he knew what was going to happen to him there. Jesus' death and resurrection did not come as a shock to him. He knew of it. We know that because he's talked about it three times now. He knew what was awaiting him in Jerusalem, his arrest, his trial, his execution, his suffering. But, but also notice even in that verse where 
where Jesus is along the way as they're heading toward Jerusalem. Verse 32 says that Jesus was, was walking ahead of them. All right, what's he doing? See, notice, when you're reading scripture, notice those key phrases, some of those details. Like, like the, the author here, Mark, is, is trying to emphasize something to us, show us something, not just a detail of what was taking place, even though that was true, but I think he's emphasizing something about who Jesus is. He's walking ahead of them. So what's Jesus doing as he's walking ahead of them to Jerusalem? He's leading them there. He's leading them there. He's not being drugged by the disciples toward Jerusalem because he knows what he's about, what about to happen to them. No, he's walking ahead of them knowing what's about to take place and he's leading them there. See, Jesus' mission becomes our mission. Now, praise God, because of Christ, we don't, we don't need to endure the wrath of God that Jesus endured while he was on the cross. When Jesus hung on that cross with nails through his hands and his feet, Jesus absorbed God's wrath for sinful humanity. 2 Corinthians 5 says that Jesus was made to, to be sin so that in and through Christ, by faith in Jesus alone, that we would become his righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5 would say we become the righteousness of God, meaning we stand before God if we're in Christ holy and blameless. Not because we are, but because we're resting in the one who is. And so through faith in Jesus, we're no longer under condemnation for our sin. Christ has paid the debt, every bit of it. But, but we share the mission. We share the same mission. Like Jesus, we are to take up our cross, Jesus says in Mark 8. Meaning that just as Jesus died for the penalty of our sin, we now die to ourselves. We deny ourselves and we, we follow him. But what does that actually mean? Because again, if we have church history, it's not something I just said that, that is unfamiliar to us. We've heard this, right? We're to deny ourselves, take up our cross daily, follow him. But, but what's that actually mean? Can we get beyond the, the coffee cup phrase of, of take up your cross and follow him? You see, to, to deny, as, as the New Testament speaks of, as Jesus speaks of, means to, means to intentionally disassociate or to, or to renounce a particular relationship with a person. This is what, what Scripture is talking about when Jesus is saying, deny yourself and take up your cross and follow him. It's this intentional disassociation. It's a renouncing of a relationship. And so when Jesus speaks of, of self-denial, taking up your cross, following him, he's saying that you need to, we need to disassociate from ourselves. It's the intentional denial of self. And it's, it's seeking Jesus as primary. This, this reality that, no, he is first above all. He comes first. When Jesus speaks of taking up our cross, keeping Keep in mind that when he said that to these, these guys in Mark 8, this was said before his crucifixion. So, so they didn't have anything to draw upon other than they knew what crucifixion was. They knew what taking up a cross implied, but they, they didn't have the clarity yet of seeing what it would really mean after his res, uh, resurrection like, and after his death. And so he says these things to him before his death on a cross. Now his death would obviously bring more clarity to that statement. But, but he said that in that moment beforehand because it, he knew it still had to mean something to them. That intentional statement meant something to his disciples before his death on a cross as well. I, I like how Chris, Christy Gambrell puts it. She says this. She said, Crucifixion was reserved specifically for offenders who had, who had rebelled against authority. So to take up one's cross 
refer to the practice of, of forcing a condemned person to carry the crossbeam to his execution site. So this showed that although he had rebelled against authority, the condemned person was now so completely conquered that his last act in life would be to carry the instrument of his demise to the place of his death. It was a show of complete and utter submission. She goes on to say, a call then to bear one's cross as part of following Jesus then is a call to be as submitted to Christ as the condemned criminal was to his own death. Therefore, when Jesus calls for self-denial and cross-bearing, he's claiming authority. Following Christ means disowning self and giving allegiance to him instead. And it means giving him allegiance down to the very depths of our being. This is what Jesus calls us to. A new mission of self-denial, of cross-bearing, which, which then shows Jesus as primary which shows him as most important in our lives and the one who is fully and solely deserving of all of our worship, all of honor, and all glory. So is this the mission that you're a part of? Is Jesus primary in your life? Is Jesus exalted in your thoughts and in your actions and in your family and in your work and in your finances and in your relationships and with your friends and in your serving and in your marriage and in your home? Every aspect that comprises our entire life, our entire being, comes underneath him. Right? We submit to him. Jesus will take no less than all of it. No less than all of it. This is why I think, as we saw last week, that the path toward life, toward eternal life, Jesus says is actually narrow. It's narrow with actually few people on it because not many are really wanting to truly do what actually Jesus calls us to, to truly let go of their lives and give everything to him, everything to him. We have softened Christ's call and Christ's mission and we have created in our, in our culture today this pseudo-Christianity that is not true Christianity. It's not true discipleship. God, help us to see again and be shaped by his word, this new mission that Jesus calls us to. This is what the cross creates. Secondly, the cross creates a new kingdom. Look at verses 35 through 41. It says, And, and James and John, the sons of Zebedee, they came up to him and they said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. And Jesus said to them, you, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able and Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. Yeah. See, Jesus begins his public ministry by saying in Mark 1, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. All right, repent and believe in the gospel. So since Mark 1, Jesus has been teaching about the kingdom. And, and he's been showing this is, this is what the true kingdom of God is. We, we saw this even a couple weeks ago, how one receives the kingdom. It's like, like a child, right? Childlike faith with humility. 
Simply put, though, God's, God's kingdom is God's eternal reign. It's his rule over God's people, which, which, as we see then from Scripture, is going to be comprised of people from every nation and every tribe and every tongue. But also from Mark 1, we see God's kingdom has been just deeply misunderstood from that point until where we are even here in the story in Mark 10. It's just misunderstood. Uh, the Jewish people, they, they wanted an overthrow of Rome. This is what they had in their mind is what the kingdom would be and what it needed to be, right? This overthrow of, overthrow of their oppressors. They wanted revolution. They wanted Caesar knocked off the throne. They want Jesus reigning instead on, on this, in this earthly kingdom, which is why Peter would rebuke him. Like, you can't reign if you're dead. Stop talking and saying these things. See, they just always misunderstood at that point what Jesus was really talking about and teaching about what the, the true kingdom of God is. And so every time Jesus was speaking of the kingdom, this is where their, their, their minds would go. They just didn't understand it quite yet. And so we, here we have, on this journey to Jerusalem, the path up to Jerusalem, you have James and John now coming to Jesus with this kind of like, if, you, if you're going if to be honest, man, just a really audacious and bold and kind of arrogant request. I, again, notice how they're approaching him, right? T- teacher, do for us whatever we ask of you, right? That's a that's, that's shocking statement right there. Do whatever we ask of you. And what do they ask? They, teacher, give us the best seats in the kingdom. We want to sit right next to you. We want to be closest to you in your glory. Notice what's going on here. Like the, they're, they're edging out the other disciples, now, James and John here, they were part of the quote-unquote inner circle, if you will. Like, oftentimes, Jesus would take them aside, and they would teach them. There was, there was three of them in that kind of inner circle that Jesus spent a little bit more intentional time with. But, but notice who's not there as they're talking to Jesus along the path. Peter. Peter's not there. He was part of that, that, that inner three circle right there. And, and so you kind of see James and John even kind of edging out Peter for the two coveted spots in the kingdom. All right, what did James and John want in their request? What were they asking for? They wanted power. They wanted control. They wanted influence. They wanted recognition. They wanted notoriety, right? Like, I, I want to be close to you. I want to sit right to your right and left in your kingdom, in your glory, and this, this desire of theirs to be first above all others was worth them really stepping over the other 10 disciples whom they had just spent the last really three years with. It's probably why then we read in verse 41 that when, when word came of what they were asking Jesus, when the other 10 heard it, it says they were indignant, meaning they, they were grieved. They were grieved at what James and John had asked. They were, they were frustrated. They were angry, right? Make no mistake, they're probably asking amongst themselves, like, who does this? Who treats people that way? Who, who, we've been doing life together. Now you're, you're trying to step on top of us to get to the top. Who, who does this? Now, James and John, as they're walking to Jerusalem with Jesus, they see Jesus alone down that path. Remember verse 32, Jesus was ahead of them, leading them there, walking toward Jerusalem, toward Jesus' execution, right? Jesus had just talked to them about what was about to take place in Jerusalem with his death, his resurrection. Instead of them thinking of, okay, what's he talking about? Am I misunderstanding something? What is he trying to, to, to bring us to? Thinking through the implications of the death and resurrection, they, they see an opportunity. They see an opportunity for them to be first, and they jump on it. You can almost see James and John like, hey, he's by himself. The other guys are distracted. Let's, let's go. Let's ask now. Now's our time. Now's our shot. 
Let's ask them. Another gospel would say that they actually brought their mom with them, right? Their mom was there, and their mom's asking, hey, can you give my boys this, right? They jumped on this opportunity for them to be first. Now the disciples had the right to be angry, but I don't believe they were necessarily righteously angry. I think they were mad that they, they hadn't thought of asking Jesus for those first, those spots, that's why Jesus, as we'll see in a minute, he, he takes them all aside, doesn't he? He takes all of them aside because they're misunderstanding, again, the kingdom. And he's going to teach them, no, this is what true greatness is. But James and John's even actions here show us something that we need to understand regarding the kingdom and even ourselves. Like, like I said, they misunderstand what the kingdom of God was and how one entered it and how it would be attained in advance. See, they, they showed a misunderstanding of what it, what it meant to follow Jesus. They showed a misunderstanding of their own hearts and, and their own need for grace. They showed a misunderstanding of what true greatness really was. They, they wanted glory, but they didn't understand where true glory, true glory would really be found. I love how Danny Aiken puts it in his commentary. He says this, At the time of our Lord's greatest glory, there were indeed men on his right and left. But they were not two apostles on thrones. They were two criminals on crosses. The disciples didn't understand yet how Jesus' inauguration as king would take place. As we've been saying from the beginning this morning, it's through suffering, through death. And so Jesus, gentle in his response still, though, to, to James and John's request, teaches them what about, what, what, what's about to come, not only to him, but he, he alludes to, here's what's about to happen to you. You don't grasp it yet, but, but you will, and, and here is what's going to take place in your life. Jesus speaks in his response to James and John of, of drinking the cup and being baptized. He uses those two symbolic phrases. The, the cup throughout, throughout Scripture has, has been this picture of the wrath of God and judgment. I'll give you a few passages just to, to show that. In Psalm 75, verse 8, says, For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it. And all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs, meaning to the, to the bottom. Isaiah 51, 17 says, wake yourself, right? Wake yourself. Stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. Jeremiah 25, 15, thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. When Jesus refers to his baptism here, He's speaking uh, and referring to this overwhelming nature, this, um, this immersive experience of what he's about to endure of God's wrath, that he's going to be immersed in it, that he's going to endure the wrath of God because of the sins of humanity. Jesus understood this clearly. It's why even in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night that he's arrested and that he's heading toward the cross, he prays to God this prayer, God, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Jesus understood what he was about to endure, the cup of God's wrath because of sinful humanity. Even alluding and speaking to this baptism, this immersive uh, experience he will have with, with this, this overwhelming suffering. In Luke 12, verse 50, Jesus says, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Jesus understood, obviously, the, the nature of the kingdom of God. He knew how it would be advanced. He knew that, it, that his glory would come through his death. James and John clearly didn't understand that just yet. They would, but, but not yet. 
James and John would suffer. This is why Jesus does speak and say, you will drink from the cup. You will be baptized. Not yet, not in the same way, but James and John would suffer. James was, was the first of the apostles to be martyred. John suffered greatly under Rome and was exiled. There was coming a day when they would more clearly, as followers of Christ, as those who have submitted their entire life to, the, the, to following Jesus as King, as Lord, brought suffering. This is why we share the same mission of Christ. As we fully follow him, we will suffer for it. And so James and John did suffer for it years later. See, the advancement of the kingdom would come through suffering. But what they needed to see in that moment as he teaches them was that Jesus' kingdom is, is a, it's a new kind of kingdom, guys. It's a new kingdom. You, you keep thinking earthly. You keep thinking right here and overthrow of Rome and revolution. That's not what we're talking about. That's not the kingdom of God. This kingdom that, that I am advancing, that I am revealing, that I am ushering in is not going to be like the kingdom of the world. The kingdom of God is not about fame and popularity and power and control, but it's a countercultural one, one of humility and gentleness and servanthood. As one author has said, that the pathway to glory is always the pathway of suffering. Before the crown, there is a cup of suffering. Before the blessings that flow, there is a baptism that overwhelms and drowns. This is what the cross creates, a new mission we share on a new kingdom which is advanced and, 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 and met with suffering and difficulty, but one that is worthy of our submission. Lastly, we see in our text that the cross creates, though, this new mindset. This is where we get to the, the teaching that Jesus has with the disciples, this new mindset that comes from those who have been changed, a new people, a new creation, a new identity. Now we have a new mind. And so he's going to unveil this and show this is what it looks like. Life in the kingdom looks like this. So through faith and life and death and resurrection of Jesus, we become a a new person, like I said, this new creation. And because of what what God is doing, he's taking out the heart of stone, replacing it with a heart of flesh. He's giving us a, a mind to see and behold who he is. We begin to see Jesus more clearly. And then scripture now calls us through the power of the spirit and the working of grace to now, to now replicate, to, to be like Jesus to pursue him, to follow him. So with that, we begin as believers, as followers of Christ, to think differently than the rest of the world. We look different than the world, right? We look differently because our minds and our hearts are coming underneath the reign and the rule of Christ and his kingdom. And as, as Jesus clearly reveals here, it's, it's gonna be a mindset of, of servanthood. Look at the remaining verses in our, in our text here this morning, starting in verse 42. And so Jesus called them to him. So now he's calling all the disciples. He, he, he spoke with James and John. Now he's going to call all of them because they're all struggling. The, James and John are understanding the kingdom. The other ten are now mad because they edged him out. And so he's going to call them all to himself and say, I want to teach you here's what it looks like in the kingdom of God. You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. Hear Jesus in these words emphasizing, I think, the words you know. You know. Do you you hear him emphasizing this to these these guys here? You, You know Brothers, you know, disciples, how ungodly rulers lead and treat people. 
You know how those in authority abuse and mistreat those that are under them. He's looking to his disciples and saying, you've seen this abuse. You've seen this mistreatment of people. You've experienced it yourself. And so he's calling them and saying, so don't replicate that. Don't don't be like the world. Right? You, you know in your hearts it's not right how they lead and how they, how they, how they uh, abuse and mistreat people, but yet you guys are arguing once again about who's going to have the greatest positions of power and authority and control in a kingdom that you don't even understand yet. How oftentimes is, is that like us? See, we, let's take an example of, of slander or gossip, right? Probably for most of us in here, I would say we've all experienced uh, personally against us, someone slandering or gossiping or mistreating us. So, so when we've experienced that, we, we feel the pain that comes from it, right? When someone says something about you that's not true or, or shares information with others that, that is true, but why, why are they sharing that? So we, we feel the heartache that, that comes when we're mistreated by others. And we say in our hearts when that takes place to us, it's not right. It's not right. And yet, what do, what do we so often do? We, we look for ways to gossip. We look for ways to slander and mistreat people ourselves. We do the very same things that we rail against when it happens to us. Jesus is saying this to the disciples. Like, like you know how abusive leaders lead. This is how the world treats and, and, and views authority and control and influence. And, and so you guys know how it's wrong, but yet you're fighting with and amongst yourselves to be like that. So Jesus is saying here, stop looking to the world. Stop modeling your lives after what you've experienced and seen in the world. You know it's wrong and you know it's wicked. Instead, what's Jesus begin to do? He draws them to himself, right? He's given them the greatest example and model for their lives and now for our lives of what it means to, to live and how we're called to live in the kingdom of God as this new people with this new identity, with this new mission. In verse 43, he once again teaches something that he's, he's already taught in Mark 9. He says, don't, don't seek prominence in yourselves, but, but rather be humble. Put others first. Put them ahead of yourself. Again, let me teach you, true greatness is found in serving. If, if you want to be first, then be last. This is what life looks like in the kingdom of God. And Jesus is going to give them then this enduring example that's countercultural, that's life-giving. Verse 45, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. He's saying, look to me. Look what I'm doing. Look what I'm about to do as we enter into Jerusalem. Jesus refers to himself in that verse as the, the son of man. There, there's, there's so much in this self-proclaimed title that Jesus claims of himself. It's a phrase that comes from the book of Daniel chapter 7. When you read of this in Daniel 7, it says and it speaks of the Son of Man who's coming as this one who's given dominion and given glory and given this kingdom. It says that, that, that that's what was given to him is, is people from all nations and all languages, that they would come and they would serve him and follow him. It speaks of the Son of Man in Daniel 7 as this kingdom that's forever, that will never be destroyed. So this is true of Christ. He is the Son of Man. He is the King who reigns over all kings, the Lord who reigns over all lords. He is the one who is worthy of our, of our submission and following. His kingdom is forever. His reign is unrivaled. His rule is unmatched. He speaks and, and, and waves stop crashing and the storms stop raging. He is over all things of all beings in the universe. He is the one deserving of our subjugation. And yet, what's Jesus say? I came to serve. 
I came to serve, not to be served. On the night he is arrested, what's he do? Gets on his knees and he washes the dirty feet of the disciples and he tells them, I'm giving you an example, an example of service. Now go and do likewise. As disciples of Christ, as followers of Jesus, we model him, not the world. Which means like Jesus, we're we're servants of one another. Christ has purchased us, bought us, redeemed us, ransomed us so that we would what? Be, Be zealous to serve and do good. This means that that as we gather here together, we intentionally look for ways to care for one another, even though maybe we won't personally benefit from it. Being a disciple of Jesus means that every covenant member of this local church should be actively serving and using their gifts to build up the body of Christ. In fact, to press on us from God's word, if you are a covenant member of Calvary and not actively serving in the life of the church, you're acting like the world and not like Christ. Because Jesus came to serve, not to be served. And so how are you using the gifts that God's given you to to build up the body of Christ, to serve one another, that the church is strengthened and encouraged and built up because you are using the gifts that God's given you through the power of the Spirit. Serve and be like Christ. It means that we don't seek out positions where we can have authority and control over others. That's not our driving factor, our driving desire to be in committees or teams so we can have control or power or influence. In fact, I would say those who, are, who demand to be put in places of leadership are the ones that should be removed from it. We don't seek out higher offices because we want authority and power over others, but we should seek out positions of influence because we want to serve. We want to serve. Our deacons in the church here are referred to often here as the leading servants of the church, meaning that we, we give that phrase to them because we we want them to model what it looks like to serve in the life of the church. Meaning that if, if you were to ask, like, okay, what's it really mean? What's it look like to serve? Our, our default action is to point to our deacon and say, just like that. That's what it means to serve. That's what Mark 10.45 is about. That's what John uh, 13 is about when he washes the disciples' feet. They're modeling servanthood to the church, not seeking recognition or fame or control or influence or power. As pastors, we're referred to as servant leaders, meaning that we lead the church by serving the body and caring for the body, not by exercising some form of control over you. The moment that we begin to drift from that, 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 that type of leadership, servant leadership, is the moment that we begin to take our eyes off of the gospel of Christ. It's the moment that we should be held to account. It's the moment that we should repent or be removed. Right? We, we are to serve one another because even the Son of Man came not to serve, not to be served, but to serve. As Christ followers, we seek greatness through self-denial and servanthood, just like Christ. He's ransomed us, cleansed us, purified us, redeemed us, bought us through his own blood so, so that we would look like him, not like the world. So, brothers and sisters, let us, as we consider these truths. But serve one another and thus look like Christ to the world that needs Christ.